you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host. Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The ChrisVossShow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks for being here. Go to YouTube.com to see the video version of this. Go to Goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. See all the books we're reading and reviewing over there. Go to all the groups we have on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all the places those cool kids are playing, and we just try and I don't know, we just try and keep up with wherever the hottest new thing is. Today, we had an amazing author on the show. His uh, book is called The Insanity of Ideas. Why Ideas Are Now Leaving Human Control and Developing Minds of Their Own. His name is Mr. Matthew Godfrey, and he's joining us today to talk about his amazing new book. He is a highly awarded and entrepreneurial CEO and author. He's published his first non-fictional book, This Insanity of Ideas, as I mentioned before. The new book covers the evolution of ideas from Elon to Einstein, from Neanderthals to Neuralink, and why thousands of people follow insane miracle cures, oracles, leaders, and influences. It also offers the positive and... I'm thinking of America in the last five years. It also covers the positive and negative influence from social media and where our society might be headed, which probably is off a cliff. He's, he'll tell us. He's also the CEO of a food technology company, Nutrition Innovation, which in 2021 has recently been awarded as one of the best small business in the world by United Nations. That's pretty awesome. Welcome to the show, Matthew. How are we doing? We're doing really well. I'm coming from Singapore. It's bright and early in the morning, so I'm really happy to spend some time with you, Chris, and connect with you. It's wonderful to have you as well. And uh, sorry for giggling there during your bio, but just start all these moments of the last five years of America started going through my head, and I'm like, wow, it's yeah, that that is a that, that's a couple volumes of books. No, it's a, it's it's a wild time out there around the world. It's not just a just America everywhere. It's got some degree. I'm American. We're assholes, so we only care about us. So that's how that works. <laughs> Welcome to America. Give us your plugs, or people can find you on the interwebs and learn more about you and order up your book. Yeah, so pretty easy. You can find the find the book at theinsanityofideas.com. It's it's there. Of course, that'll lead you to the Amazon page. So that's a pretty easy place to, to go. That'll lead you to Instagram, will lead you to Facebook. So that's all easy. So one place is we'll hook you all up. And of course, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, Matthew Godfrey at Nutrition Innovation. There you go. What motivates you on to write this book? And of course, uh, I love some insight into what were you thinking of when you wrote the title? So I've been in the ideas business for about 25 years. And so every day is either making ideas, processing ideas, or selling ideas to people in, in marketing communication. So it's an insane industry. But I was looking across uh, the world, as you said, and particularly places which seem to be in turmoil between positive ideas and and bad ideas, Mm. and and trying to ask what are the evolutionary consequences to that? What are the cultural consequences to that? And what role technology has been playing in that? And and then trying to map that both past, present, and future to ask where are we today and what's going to be like in maybe 50 or 100 years? And are we on the right track with processing? Fundamentally, Will we still be selecting the best ideas in in about uh, two or three or four decades to come? 
So it seemed the right time to ask those questions. What is an idea? Let's talk, let's lay a foundation for that. And I th- believe that's yeah. your first chapter too. I just saw that as I said it. I'm just following right along at this point. So yeah, I mean, well, what do you define an idea? As? So, so people have about 60,000 60, thoughts a day. And so many of them could be <laughs> ideas, might not. I define the, the idea in the book as, as a thought which actually has consequences. And if you think about a memory, you're thinking about back in time. So you can think about all you want, but you really can't change anything. It doesn't affect anything in the past. So an idea is uh, so, some sort of creation in your mind, which if you act upon it, it'll change a future outcome. Hmm. I think I unfriended somebody today who has about five thoughts going on a daily basis. <laughs> that might be too much. It <laughs> might be a negative at this point. There yeah, I get, I get about 50,000, so. but maybe one of them is good. So the rest yeah. are going to describe I'd like so. to see a curve or a test for this. Can we put a test to people that finds out how much stuff is really going on upstairs or whether or not they're just walking brain dead? Because we have it's a few a, of those. It's that Simpson character where he's just got just a carnival playing in his mind. Yeah, there's just like drool coming down the side of his mouth. In fact, <laughs> I have two dogs that are that way, so that explains everything. Huskies. And that was me about 20 minutes ago. That's me every day when I'm not on the podcast. I'm pretty much sitting in the corner in the straight jacket. So, you know, the rest of your title is why ideas are now leaving human control and developing minds of their own. What is that? The first idea is on the planet that you can you track back around about 3 million years ago where, where a whole bunch of hominids were, were making stone axes. So you can trace ideas back on the planet quite quite a way, and they predate actually the human species. Yeah. Uh, and from a lot of other ideas sort of popped up predates human species. Even art comes from apparently comes from Neanderthals at this stage. And so you can track ideas back quite a long way, and the pace of them you can track back. But we're all now playing with a new idea, which we've we decided to invent to help us process thoughts, which is artificial intelligence. As we move along, we're programming that to not only have intelligence, but have its own ideas. It'll have its own thoughts and consequences of what's next. That's great. And so, and so the, the, yeah. And so this is live. It's ongoing. It's a billion-dollar industry. There's, mm. there's thousands of people engaged in it. So it's got a trajectory of its own. And so we have a whole industry which is trying to invent technology that will have ideas in the future. So if you track back in time, you'll have Neanderthals and humans all debating ideas together. Mm. You know what happened to them. But if you go forward 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, who will be creating the ideas in the future and who will be better at selecting which ones are best for us? Will that be after we were extinct as humanity and Skynet has taken over from Terminator and basically yeah. is running everything? Is that, um, is that it, basically? It depends. It depends which way you go. If you yeah. then look at Neuralink, which is the idea to integrate technology with humanity, and it starts off in very altruistic terms about helping to, to repair damage helping to optimize people. But if you look at all the mission statements in that whole industry, in, the, in that uh, augmentation industry, it is moving towards an area which is trying to perfect humanity. And so it depends who wins the race. If mm. it's uh, if the augmented industry, then they'll have a viewpoint on, on how humans will operate. And, and of course, other people will have. And of course, that, that business is, is, is booming. I think now the Obviously, America leads the way with about 30,000 um, people employed in the AI industry. But China's not too far behind. China has now 20,000 people employed in the AI industry. So it's also a question of not just where does it go, but who's driving it and what agenda are they driving behind, which is also interesting to, to unpack in the book. Now, China's AI is, correct me if I'm wrong, is mostly designed to create that social credit thing they have where they know what everyone's thinking doing basically the big brother concept is that yeah that that, that is expansive and horrific and, yeah. uh, and i i think we're just at the tip of the iceberg there's a, i read an interesting book the other day about 
looking at how pervasive that is in terms of even putting monitoring devices and cameras inside people's homes mm. to, to track their behavior, not only socially online, but in real time in, in as they go about their daily basis. So there mm. are really terrific examples of using that type of technique. What's funny is uh, Amazon right now, I'm looking at your page of your book on Amazon, and it's serving me Alexa, buy the book 1984 on Kindle. Isn't that funny? <laughs> We're talking about this. I just was, I just read yeah. the ad that was up above your book. Algorithms are also partly to blame to, to the insanity of it. So algorithms, there's an old advertising meme, which is if nobody loves you and nobody hates you, then nobody knows you. And it, it, <laughs> it sounds like the story of my first nine ex-wives. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. And and, and one of those one of those worlds which you, which is if you provoke a response um, from somebody in your audience, you're going to get a connection, and it's either going to be hate or kind of love. But if you're in the middle, there's no response. You're going to be ignored as a brand. Mm-hmm. And uh, the social media algorithms work basically on this principle. They're looking for content that's going to provoke a response. And they're looking for to feed you both ideas and suggestions and viewerships on, on things that actually they'll get a buzz out of you uh, and feed you dopamine. Particularly a lot of the insanity in ideas is actually driven by a lot of the platforms looking to provoke you with uh, stuff that you either love or hate. And so it feel, feels like there's more intensity in the world simply because uh, that's the content that, that bores your blood. There you go. Did you see the recent uh, thing over the weekend with 60 Minutes and the whistleblower of Facebook over the algorithms? Did you see that? Yeah, look, uh, it's in the book. It's it's very timely. But the uh, the if you look across the board, the uh, there's a good group in out of California, which is I think called the Center for Human Technology, which has actually been in front of the U.S. Senate on a number of occasions, speaking to the same topics and speaking to the same areas about how the the social media platforms across the board are really twisting behavior to their own device. I don't think anybody should be surprised. I think 98% of Facebook's revenue comes from advertising, 80-odd percent from Twitter, uh, 80-odd percent from, from Google. So when the when they make extraordinary amounts of money from advertising, they're in the they're in their business of marketing themselves and, and getting as much viewership as possible. Look, it, it it is pervasive. It's been going on for a long time. There's people been calling out at the U.S. Senate, to, but one of the biggest contributors and the beneficiaries of these platforms is is political advertising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you got the people who are benefiting from these platforms the most, setting the rules for the platforms as well. Yeah. So also, it seems like the whole thing is really messed up when it comes to. There should be some third-party oversight or something like that. It'll, it'll take us certainly a while to un- unpick. And the, the question I think there is, let's say it takes five years to unpick. If you were to go back to, not too far ago, but I hate to go back too far in time, but let's say you and I were living in the 1880s. feels it, like it, took, it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it took 72 days to get a letter from Australia to, to London. So if you wow. want to communicate somebody, really what you had to wait you know, two or three months for a ra- round trip. Um, not wow. Not a round trip. But now you get like a letter. Hey, this is Bob in Australia. I've got COVID. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, this right is it. So, so, so up until about uh, 70 years ago, uh, maybe even less, maybe 20, 30 years ago, ideas spread slowly. So good ideas and bad ideas were, mm. were focused around a location. And even up until the, the, the First World War, the fastest way to get messages around was carrier pigeon. Mm. And and now, apart from that, you really didn't have a lot of chance to spread your thoughts. But now, obviously, with with fifty, I think four point seven billion people connected to the internet, mm. a good idea and bad idea can be globalized instantly. And so, with as the power of ideas increase, as the consequence of those ideas increase, five years in in eighteen eighty to sort something out might not have had bad consequences. But five years in in our world is, is like dog years. A lot can go on. 
Is it more amplified? What's that old rule? A lie tends to spread around the world in seconds yeah. or something. But they- According to research, fake news moves about six times quicker. Wow. And so if you think about think about kind of the socialization of ideas and all, all the platforms that exist on, and if you have if you just argue that bad ideas, let's assume that the fake ideas are bad ideas, they are moving six times quicker than good ideas and, and probably balanced ideas which don't provoke response aren't moving at all. And so it's not just it's bad ideas or fake ideas. The, the platforms are promoting ideas which provoke response. So balance neutral ideas, which everybody goes, yeah, I agree with. They just don't get the momentum or the traction. So not all ideas are, are, are shared equally. And so that's why you get this dichotomy and spread because actually the platforms are incentivized by the algorithms to spread the ideas which monetize themselves quickly. And that's obviously the, the stuff that's provocative. It just made me realize something there. Maybe that's the reason we've become more and more polarized is because yep. – those middle centrist, let's all get along ideas, they aren't as exciting. They don't provoke as much emotion, rage, and passion as everyone else. But getting along, that's boring. Eh? Fighting, and uh, over here and over here, let's go. Cage match. You, you, you bang on, uh, Chris. I, I think there's, there's two things. One, it's an explanation of why they feel there's more tension. But there is a, a potential there that it just appears that way because that's what we see. That's what's fed to us. Actually, mm-hmm. the underlying base, there's more commonality, there's more agreement, there's more harmony. But you don't see that. I don't see that because it's not fed to us. So to move forward a little bit, as you say, which is rather mean, to, what, are, what are some of the good fixes? Some of the good fixes going forward is to bring equality to ideas. And if the, the platforms are incentivized and monetized and paid to spread the worst ideas, then how do you flip that switch and say, well, actually, let's neutralize that. All ideas are equal. And, and I think that would actually bring a little bit more balance into people's lives. It's actually, there is a neutral view, which I can accommodate. And other people think like me. It's not like it's two prize fighters in the corner coming out to fight. There is a, there is a middle ground. Yeah, but I think Facebook and those have people have found that that takes people off the platform, doesn't it? It's not quite yeah. as engaging. It's not quite as... It does no. two things. It, it, it reduces time on the platform mm-hmm. and also makes you less predictable. And uh, the ability to predictable is probably equally as valuable. Because if I'm going to, if I'm a platform and I'm going to sell Chris Voss to a brand to, to market, I need to be able to predict which brands he's going to, what content he's going to like. And I need to be able to do that efficiently and effectively. Otherwise, I'm not going to monetize you. And so predictability to, to behavior is almost as important as time on the platform. So that's how they're engineered and geared. And so the whole model of monetization is, is geared around those two things, which means it's always going to, if you um, get uh, provoked at a video, I'm going to feed you more of that. And so it's just built into the monetization system of the platforms, and uh, they're insanely wealthy. Uh, yeah, the, the, the world's different. burning and genocides in Miramar and... And I've seen what's her face, the his COO who's written memos. It's like, yeah, we don't care if the third world country wants to go kill its people. We'll get along and bend bend around them, and whatever they do is their business, not a problem. And these guys are pan globalists; they don't care about democracies <laughs> or anything else. No. All, all they care about is making billions of dollars of money, and uh, it's just extraordinary. So, quarterly reports to to meet shareholder expectations, yeah. and they're driving forward. Yeah, capitalism is great, ruins everything. Let me rephrase that. Unfettered capitalism ruins everything. There's a reason we used to restrict monopolies and do all sorts of things back in the day. It's because capitalism is good, but when it's just unbridled and it doesn't matter who you put through the meat grinder, such as our health system. So is you talk <laughs> about the dopamine apes. I think this is really important because that was one of the things she talked about, the whistleblower, 
yeah. and what it's doing to these young girls. And I know a lot of these girls these days I see have become validation dopamine addicts. And yeah. women have always, they like validation. Hey, you look pretty. Yeah. Hey, you're good looking. That's always, I think, a part of their uh, nature. But you have people now that they can't live or they can't function, or a lot of these teens were struggling to compete with other people that were maybe better looking than them. And they live for that dopamine hit where it's like, I post my picture, did anybody like me? Anybody like me? Oh my God, no one likes me. And uh, tell us about the dopamine apes. So it's a, uh, dopamine can track back in, in kind of human evolution up to 4.4 million years. So mm -hmm. it's quite an old mechanism inside of our, our genetics. And it, it was it was most likely originally evolved to promote good social behavior and also anticipate and reward social behavior. Mm. So if you're in a tribe and you want to survive that tribe, obviously if you do something good for that tribe, you want to get a reward. And dopamine works very well for engineering sociability until it stops, <laughs> until it doesn't. And until a good example is our close friend, Chris Charlie Sheen. So the drug cocaine interrupts dopamine. So when you get a dopamine huh? response, it blocks the passage through the synapses. So dopamine all builds up the synapses and it gets a release, and that's the cocaine hit that Charlie Sheen is so keen on. Winning. So dopamine is, is, can be interfered with to, to increase the pleasure and reward principle, which is why some compounds become so. However, there's been a lot of research, I think it started with Harvard back in about 2016, which was looking at how people interact with social media and, and getting likes, getting views, getting interactions was actually feeding dopamine systems. And actually then both predicting and rewarding kind of intense behavior on a platform and repeat behavior on a platform. Our dopamine systems, which was designed for apes 4.4 million years ago, wasn't designed for an online socializing, TikToking, Kardashian world. But that's what we're doing with it. Now, our friends at Facebook, I think when asked about this in a 2019 Senate inquiry, I think Mr. Zuckerberg said, and I, I would want to paraphrase this rather than quote, I think he said um, he's seen no internal evidence that, that any of the uh, platforms are addictive. And internal evidence is one thing. And also, secondly, I've not seen could mean nobody's ever showed it to him. But the other thing is uh, Jack Dorsey from Twitter said uh, something like, which is, well, all things in life can be addictive. So he, he now the confirmed oh, well. night. We just amplify it. That's like a drug sure. dealer. Because I was really thinking after watching the whistleblower interview on 60 Minutes, and I'm like, really? If I had kids and my kid was like, hey, Dad, I'm going to take some cocaine, I'd be like, no, you're going to get addicted to that. It would be bad. But then I'm like, yeah, here, go on Instagram. You're like, wait, yeah, it's, this it's, is really a drug. This is really a drug you're giving your child or allowing your child to do. So if you un unpack human genetics, and this is why it's what's interesting, which is we've got this ape biology mm -hmm. uh, engineered and um, and uh, evolved for a certain type of world. And But if you look at our biology, it hasn't had a good upgrade for about 300,000 years. I mean, we're, we're basically the same for, for, for quite some time. But our ideas are moving faster than our biology can. So uh, that's uh -huh. when you then have this crossover point, which is when does it get too much? How much are we looking at in terms of different ideas which will drive human evolution? And are ideas moving faster now than evolution? Now, in fact, the answer, I, I think, primarily is yes. Our ideas are now outpacing our ability to evolve to catch up with them at a rapid pace. So that's also an interesting dichotomy to, to think forward for the next 100, 200 years, because we won't evolve at all, but our ideas will. Our ideas, ideas are evolving super fast. I don't know about the gold ape behind you. I don't know if he's on dopamine, but he sure is pretty peaceful. I think he's on something else. I'd like to say solid gold, but he's not. He's a, he's a, yeah. he's a, 
He's a lovely character. He's probably smoking whatever in the bowls next to that. He's pretty chill. Yeah, so this is really important. So where do you think our biggest problems that you write about in the book are? Is it the social media stuff? What what else is um, there? Two, two things, I think, if to hop on onto the problems, I think the how excited we generally are to militarize ideas is probably our biggest problem. I picked up an example, which is in in about, I think, 1890, the, the U.S. census got to a stage which was there are too many people in America to manually count the census. And there was, I think, 5 million people in America in about 1890. And it was taking seven to, no, sorry, 50 million. So it was taking seven years to count the census. So it was too long. So they needed a, an automatic tabulation machine to help through the US census. And so long story short, the punch card was invented. And that was evolved to invented to help the US government really try to, to manage you know, population growth. And that was in 1900. By the time we got to 1946, that punch card was being used in ENIAC, the first computer designed to do a few things. It was commissioned by the US, but it was designed amongst other things to do the calculations for the nuclear bomb drops. Wow. And so we we're taking punch card technology and we move that through to militarizing them to help better efficiently kill people. And so with that, you go, okay, what are we doing now? In 2017, Vladimir Putin announced a new arms race on artificial intelligence and a goal to, to transform the Russian army into one that's built on AI. In the, in the Chinese Politburo uh, political platform, they have a 30-year plan to militarize AI. And I think in 2019, the U.S. State Department came out and said, this is a new, new arms race and we have to catch up and increase funding. I think funding is probably about $4 billion into militarizing AI. Wow. And so so you, and I think Vladimir Putin said, whoever controls AI will control the world. Wow. So, while we're all focused on AI in various areas, there is a stealth war going on already on militarizing AI. And and this is a quite, I think, a challenge because the United Nations have come out and said AI should not be used in warfare, and they're called lethal autonomous weapons. <clears throat> and, of course, many countries have just ignored that. So the Russian and the Chinese have ignored that, that, that kind of – and so they're rapidly developing it. What the U.S. has said is we won't deploy – um, AI into the battlefield, but doesn't stop us developing it. And already you can buy, there's a company in China that makes a, a predator drone called the Blowfish. It's about the size of your Labrador and it's already built and advertised as being uh, fully autonomous, can operate in swarms. You can attach grenade launchers to it. You can attach uh, machine guns to it. Ready for sale now, fully autonomous drones made from China. So that's wow. where we are today, and that's in the white world. What's in the black world that's coming? And particularly China has no restrictions to trying to integrate AI that's been developed in uh, the corporate world back into their technology, which is a, a bit of a restriction in, in, in America. Mm -hmm. So you've got this stealth arms race, which is going on, which is akin to the development of the nuclear weapon, all being done virtually in secret. And that's going to be interesting over the next 10, 20 years. Now, how long will it take? It's going to take more than a year. Uh, is it going to take more than 10 years? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Will it take 20 years? I don't know. But if you just think forward and say, let's go 50 years, then highly probable. I think most um, scientists estimate 50 years, it's highly probable, which in terms of is within a human lifespan. So that's a bit of a worry. That is a bit of a worry. Jeez, I could have a whole mess of drones come and kill me. We have those big U.S. drones, but imagine a whole... I've seen those flights of the little drones that fly around and they make images in the sky and stuff. Yeah. Wow, that would be so imagine, crazy. Imagine those. Imagine a thousand of those. Imagine a thousand of those programmed to, 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 to target something, deciding autonomously. They have ranges of about 80 to 100 miles. Wow. Imagine you could just let them loose somewhere. Mm -hmm. So the theater of warfare would change. The theater of Definitely. warfare could be, could be anywhere. So 
That I think is, and that is not necessarily AI doing it. So the Hollywood scenario of AI doing it, that's not nothing to do with that. That's governments saying we're in a a race. We're doing that now. So we're designing that. So in in the same idea is you don't need to wait for the robots to decide it. We're already figuring that out ourselves. We have billions of dollars now engineered at figuring out how to do that to ourselves. And that can be only a human idea. One one of the interesting and crazy ideas that I thought was in the book was it was scientists during the Manhattan Project worked out two things. The first they worked out, which was if you drop a bomb from, I think, 1,700 feet, so it explodes at 1,700 feet, it kills more people than if it hits the ground. Yeah. So, so therefore, that was the optimal distance for, for killing. And secondly, they had debate on location. And one of, the, one of the debates for location was Kyoto. And the reason Kyoto was there was it had some really good universities and some of the best scientists were there. And so the idea was, look, if we wipe out Kyoto, we're going to wipe out scientists, which will actually impair the ability for retaliation and new ideas to come through. So you had scientists discussing ideas to just kill other scientists to stop their ideas. And you don't need robots for that. you got you got people doing that everywhere today. So those are the things that I think should be focused on more. We'll enjoy TikTok and, and some other things today, but, but I think the world needs to focus uh, a little bit more on, on the militarization of ideas um, because we're exceedingly good at it. We do it quickly. We usually do it first. It was, if you look at nuclear war, we obviously dropped bombs in 1945, but the first time it was used for energy utilization was, I think, in Pennsylvania in 1950. 257. Mm-hmm. So it was 12 years later before we actually did just the energy. We managed to militarize the idea first. Yeah, there's no more war. We don't have anybody to kill. I guess we should use this for some. Good things are good. So, in terms of optimism, there's so many good things. So, to, to argue with the other front, which is our friend Elon and uh, a few other people are championing the use of artificial intelligence to, to take away death and destruction. There's 1.33 million people killed a year in road deaths, and 90% of them are due to human error. Mm-hmm. And so, most estimates by even the US Department of Transport say that, that fully autonomous driving models will reduce human deaths by 94%. So that's over a million people saved a year. That's a kind of a noble effort. And put aside the debate, should we do it? But just on paper, handing over responsibility to artificial ideas could save a million lives. So you, you might argue we should try and explore that. Additionally, you've got just today, you've got every year, there's about 3.3 million people die of starvation around the world. And about 3,500 children die a day from starvation. Mm-hmm. But yet there's enough food waste on the planet to feed another 800 million people. So we already make enough food for these people to save these lives. But our issue is about how it's distributed, how it's made, how it's grown. And the United Nations in 2015 started a new goal for 2030 to solve this particular problem. And their latest nutrition report says we know we're close. I think four out of four countries are kind of 40% of the way and rest of the country is not even there. So what happens if we hand it uh, like autonomous driving? We said, look, there's better ways to distribute risk. So let's hand it over to things that are smarter. Mm-hmm. What other things can we hand over to, to solve human suffering, to improve living conditions? And say, so, look, actually, let's find smarter ideas through artificial intelligence to actually solve problems. So uh, I think we have choices to make as society because the idea that we will have no decisions made by artificial intelligence hasn't been true for, for decades already. And the idea you're going to hand all, all of them over is equally perhaps risky. But they're clearly, just as autonomous driving is an idea where you go, we could save a million people. Food distribution, starvation, poverty, there's a whole range of ideas where actually maybe there's some more intelligence out there that we could use. And I think Steve Jobs was famous. And part of my success, I just hire smarter people and let them go. And so if Steve Jobs, one of the, one of the most 
influential people and the smartest people on the planet said, actually, I just want to find smart people. Why don't we just find smarter technology and give them briefs? Because we're heading that way anyway. So there can be quite an optimistic view of this technology. And I think that needs to be unpacked um, and discussed quite openly rather than just the negatives. Let's touch on another chapter you wrote in the book called The Idea Economy. Is that the future of where we're heading, where we won't uh, be a manufacturer, no, we'll just be ideas? The, the, the idea really looks at, at, at the, the ecosystem that's that's built and designed to, to fuel and fund ideas. Um, and uh, looks at a lot of the entrepreneurs which, which, which are trying to drive them. Now, one of the things which I thought was really interesting when you look at the world's leading entrepreneurs is Richard Branson is one I picked out, and there's a number in the book is they pride themselves on failure. Mm-hmm. And so there's this mantra of now, which has emerged through Silicon Valley and beyond, fail fast. And so make mistakes, break things, get it out and go. And I think the idea economy has grabbed this as an ethos. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have bad ideas because don't worry, we'll correct them. And don't worry, that's how we work in beta. In fact, it's cool to be wrong because that's how we work in the new economy. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's dangerous as, a, as an ethos. And I think although... Most of the world's leading entrepreneurs use it as a badge of honor. I've failed many times, and that's why I succeed now. The, the issue is we have to live with the consequences of, of that. And so I unpacked some of the failures, some mm. of the heartache, and some of the some of how many people lost their money, lost their jobs. Because every time a, 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 an idea goes wrong, there is consequences of fallout. One of them I like to go back to is in 1900, two-thirds of the cars in America were zero emissions. And so only one third of the cars were, cars were on gasoline. And, and so for a whole bunch of bad ideas, which were just the easy ideas, the market economy ideas, we decided that the electric cars and steam powered cars were, were bad and we went with gasoline. And we are where we are now in terms of pollution and carbon emissions. We had the right stuff. And so the arc of the economy is getting there in terms of looking at zero emission cars and getting back to a non-polluted world. But it's taken 100 plus years. Wow. And so what are the consequences of getting it wrong in a world where technology is much more powerful than it was 100 years ago? And so getting it wrong 100 years ago, you go, well, actually, what risk was still quite systemic, but now it's even worse. And so I don't think we can be living in a world where ideas are so powerful and run in an ethos is it's okay to get it wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't worry, the, the market will correct it. Now, part of the argument is well, people didn't know about electric cars and emissions back in 1900. But, but in, in the same year, there was a, a, Nobel, uh, a Nobel Prize-winning scientist, Devontae, who put out a research paper and quite a number of published reports predicting that if we follow the way of burning carbon fuels, we will heat the planet. So mm-hmm. we had the data as a civilization that this is the bad idea. We actually had the start of electric, electrification of cars, but because of simplicity and easy use of market forces, we went the wrong way. And so the idea economy is looking at kind of the, the pace of the stock market, the pace of innovation, and the, the selection criteria. Now, even I think 70% of well-funded venture capital ideas still... So 9 out of 10 businesses fail anyway, but even venture capital-funded ideas, 7 out of 10 fail. And for all various reasons, and good and bad ones. So it just explores the consequences of getting it wrong, gets to this point of we need better systems for picking ideas and finding not just the good ones, but looking out for the bad ones. And the bad ones hidden in the noise. So Facebook, and, and we've talked about, which is sociability, connectivity. You could say that's arguably a fantastic idea to, to uh, democratize the world. But the business model that's underneath it, is that a bad idea? And, mm. and some, some bad ideas are buried within good ideas, and they only come out later on. And if you're globalizing ideas quickly with immense capital, immense scale, 
you've got to pick up the pieces later on. And unfortunately, we'll all be picking up the pieces. That totally explains social media because when social media started out in 2008, I was one of those people like, it's a brand new world. It's yeah. it. We're all going to come together and yeah. the borders and everything will all be more one. And yeah. now it's just turned into, it's like that yeah, Gremlin so, movie. So, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because you and I will remember the cheering of the 2011 Arab Spring where, where dictators were toppled through social media. And there were totalitarian governments who were caught off guard by this movement. But if you look now, they, they have turned these tools and technology mm-hmm. back against the people. So we talked about the social credit system in China, but no matter where you go, increasing the, these tools, which were meant to liberalize people and democratize people, have been turned against them to, to, as a system. And it's pervasive, it's spreading. And uh, yeah, even Amnesty International called out Facebook in, in Vietnam to say, you're bowing to government pressure for blocking things. And and so these reports are uh, endless. They're everywhere. And uh, it's a real watch out. And it's happened quickly. And this is the point. The pace of ideas, it can go from 2011 to, to the savior of the world to 2021. To, now, wind that back. Quite difficult now. We're 47 yeah, you know, 4.7 billion people connected. So those are the. That's why the ideas can be insane. They can drive people insane. And the human genome. A lot of research shows that we don't function well with too many choices. A good American professor called, I think, Professor Schwartz did a lot of research on what he called was the par- paralysis of choice. Yep. And actually, too much choice causes discomfort. Too much choice mm. causes confusion. Uh, yeah, I, I refer to 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 when you. When you go onto Netflix and there's 10,000 things but nothing to watch, there's too, yeah. there's too many choices. And another university in the UK did some research and uh, they looked at restaurant choices. And the optimal happiness was se- seven on seven appetizers, 10 mains, seven desserts. More or less mm-hmm. than that, people were unhappy. So mm-hmm. we are engineered biologically and through evolution to, to deal with a finite set of choices. You give us too much, we, we actually not we don't get happier. We get unhappier. Yeah, That's true. I learned that in sales. You, you give an either or. You do want A or B or maybe C. You don't yeah, give them the alphabet. You, you and, and when you get B, you stop. When somebody says, I'll take B, you end the meeting and move huh. away. What you don't go is, I've got seven other things for you to pick from. You just create yeah. confusion and choice. And, but that's what's happening in our world. Even if you wake up one morning, you might see something. You, I think that's true. By the time you got past your coffee, you've got 12 other things to deal with. Yeah, that's the problem I've had. Some of my favorite Mexican restaurants, you'll open up their menu and they have six pages it turns into. And you're like, I was just thinking about tacos, but now I'm confused. Yeah, there's, maybe a there's, there's a restaurant near me, which is which has got half half Mexican, half Indian. And I always find it confusing. It, it just drives <laughs> me crazy. But Chris, you're right. It, it, this, yeah. this paralysis of choices is built into who we are as a species. Yeah. But which is why I think you know, long form content is taking out because it allows you to sit down and listen. There are some benefits from trying to take less ideas in. And so mm-hmm. I think one other one other piece is, is people need to be more careful about what content they soak in, how often they soak it in, manage their time better because all all these tools are at disposal. So if you're an alcoholic, you better manage manage kind of your exposure to these things. So That's you, a good point. I like that analogy. Yeah, you've got to manage your exposure. So uh, a part of this exercise, um, about a year and a half ago, I, I, I pretty much turned off the news channels. So just working out what in your daily business you can focus on and what you can go and you can actually get happier as, as a result. You definitely can. I got happier since the news changed over the last year or <laughs> eight months or 10 months, how long it was. So yeah. Matthew, this has been a great discussion. We want people to go, Chris, get, of course, get your book. Uh, anything you want to touch on before we go out? Oh, look, let's maybe just talk a little, you know, two minutes on, on the company I work okay. for. 
And uh, so it's founded by two scientists who approach life as a food as medicine point of view. They're absolute geniuses. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to, to, to work for them and help them lead their ideas. We, we have a number of innovations which uh, about solving the sugar problem, sugar reduction, um, yeah. and anti-diabetes problem. And they all come from nature. So using natural bioactive compounds to, to enable people to, to have naturally less or actually have natural compounds which will slow the metabolism of sugar. So that's, that's what we've been working on with that technology has been, it retrofits into the kind of the existing food and, and ingredients industry. We've taken that technology from invented in Australia to Malaysia, to Thailand, to Africa, to Brazil, to Central America, which are the major sugarcane growing crops in the world. So we've already deployed that in, in multiple markets. And yeah, now it's with first our first product, which is a, a product called New Cane Low Glycemic Sugar. Uh, oh, wow. we've, we've sold 11 million um, kilograms in mm-hmm. the first few years of operations. And yeah, and try, trying to, to, to give people affordable, healthier, natural choices to highly processed foods. Um, yeah, I learned a long time ago how bad some of this high fructose corn syrup and all this crazy stuff that we do, man. I try and cut as much of that as I can out of my diet, but it's so pervasive. It's everywhere. Yeah, and so it's and it's, and the problem it's pervasive is cheap, and so a lot of the food companies, if you want to get a healthy alternative, it's, sometimes it's four times more, sometimes it's eight times more. So a they can't afford to buy it, so they and they can't afford to sell it on. So what yeah. we've been doing is asking the question of why are those things so bad? So uh, if you look at an apple, it's ten percent sugar, but if you'd eat an apple, it wouldn't be bad for you because it's naturally complex. Sugar cane is actually naturally complex. It's full of um, antioxidants. It's full of calcium, magnesium, potassium. But for about 100 years, the refining industry has been taking all that out and putting it as a waste stream. So what our technology does is look for these natural bioactive compounds as sugar has been made, keep them in. So think of it as, as naturally complex, like brown bread, brown rice, brown wheat. We actually keep that to a maximum in, in our products so that they slow down metabolism of sugar. So quite interesting science founded by geniuses, exciting stuff. And that's why the United Nations singled us out as, as working with the, the, the supply chain to fix problems. Because yeah, by moving to us, you don't need new factories to be built. You don't need a new crop to be done. You don't need new food regulations to be done. And you can make quick changes. A lot of other challenges, new chemicals or new products, which will take 10 to 12 years to be regulated. And, and this is, is fast to move. So really proud to be working with them on that. Um, and uh, so you can find that at Nutrition Innovation group.com awesome sauce that is great man that's something we really need because we really have a problem over in here i I even love when people are like yeah i I drink diet and you're like that stevia is worse for you than just regular sugar honey there's a whole bunch of emerging science about the microbiome and it's i hate to say it's also in the book about the importance of the microbiome to mental health Mm -hmm. um and the depletion of your microbiome interferes with a whole range of things. In fact, they've done research and studies, which is if you, if you take a species of mouse, which is known to be timid, and a species of mouse that's known to be brave, and you swap the microbiome over, their personalities will change. Mm. So the microbiome is driving a, a, a lot of who we are as it, both individuals and the species. And if you deplete that, if you run that down, if you actually destroy that, you, you actually can increase anxiety, you can increase autism, you can increase depression. And, and so maintaining a healthy microbiome is, is important for, for, for balance and, uh, yeah, just general good health. You need good carbohydrates, you need good foods because, yeah, you're, you're feeding 1.5 kilograms of bugs which live in your intestines, you've got to feed them. So when you eat food, you're not just feeding yourself. There's 1.5 kilograms of other animals, well, other microbes living inside you, which are good bacteria. If you don't feed them properly, they can't help you. That's uh, in the chapter, I think it's called the idea colony. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and how if you don't take care of your internal health, you won't actually make the right decisions. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. There's a connection to those two. So give us your plugs as we go out so people can find you on the interwebs. Sure. Let's, let's interweb me at, at uh, www.theinsanityofideas.com. Uh, the That's super simple. Um, you can find uh, the book on Amazon or you can find me on LinkedIn, Matthew Godfrey, or for, the, for, for our food tech company, nutritioninnovationgroup.com. There you go. There you go. Thank you very much, Matthew, for coming on the show. We certainly appreciate it. Chris, it was a hoot, and thank you for inviting me. It's just been an honor to, 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 to be with you and share with you from Singapore. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, and it was luck. wonderful hey, to have luck. you and the gold monkey on. Good luck the, with your book as well. Your book launched you. today. And, and look, I'm sure it'll do really well. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to grab a copy myself. So congratulations. Enjoy it. It'll, it makes, there's no centerfold in it, but it'll make for good bathroom reading or something. I don't know. <laughs> I expect a personal Instagram centerfold from you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, my audience, for tuning in. Go to youtube.com for just Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. Go to goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. And you can go to YouTube uh, or Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those different places to see what we're doing. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. And we'll see you guys next time.